0: I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the social radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're talking with Parker Conrad, who founded Zenefits in 2013 and Rippling in 2016, two startups that went on to be unicorns. YC funded both. Parker's story is one of the most dramatic you'll hear on this podcast. So buckle up, because here we go. So Carolyn, today we're talking with Parker Conrad, the CEO and co-founder of Rippling. And the story of Rippling is very much intertwined with Zenefits, the company he started before that. For listeners, Zenefits handled payroll, health insurance, and employee benefits for businesses. And it grew very fast and was a big media darling. But by 2016, Parker, you'd been ousted in what was essentially a palace coup. And then the press tried to paint you as this tech villain. The press had a list of bad things they attacked you for, and they were all bullshit. Can we just dive right in and have you talk about what these things were and what really happened?
1: I think there there were kind of three things that sort of ended up being, you know, in the media about Zenefits. There was this thing about insurance licensing for our reps, there was this thing about the macro, and then there was the the supposed party culture of the company. And there, there were three sort of very different things, so I'll, I can talk about them each in turn. But on the licensing side, the people's benefits were, f- for the most part, properly licensed in their home states, but they weren't licensed in other states around the country. Uh, The company was, but the individuals weren't. The simple reason is that we didn't think that they had to be. And we didn't think they had to be because that's what our lawyers had told us was required. Uh, And by the way, what happened is at a certain point, our our lawyer said, look, you know, regulators are really pushing back on this. Is this really something we want to – we want to fight on. Why don't we just get everyone licensed everywhere? And we did. And 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 sort of in the last year that I was at Zenefits, the the compliance with these specific out of state licensing rules went to the over ninety five percent. And getting your license actually, once you have it in your underlying home state, getting your license in these other these other states around the country, all you have to do is you go to this website, you swipe your credit card, you pay like seventy five bucks usually, and now you have your license in in the other state. And so there's no additional training required. It's really just it's an occupational licensing requirement and a licensing fee that you need to pay. And there was like zero benefit. You know, this is not a lot of money. There was zero benefit to the company of you know not getting people licensed. Like this wasn't. It wasn't like a part of our business strategy. You know, it wasn't like Zenefits's model is like you know screw the occupational licensing rules around insurance license. You know, it was just a mistake
0: because your lawyers advised you that it didn't matter. Yeah, I think
1: I think there's just a different sort of moral character to making a mistake like this than mm-hmm. you know sort of going out and you know sort of like saying we're going to undermine the sort of licensing regime. And so what happened is we got, you know, while I was there, we got to this point where we all, you know, everyone was licensed everywhere, but at the time Zenefits was by some measures the largest small group insurance producer in the United States by the volume of, of sort of new business we were writing. And so I hired PWC to come in and basically audit all of that, and sort of figure out for every deal that we had done, what was the sort of provenance of it? And then we we decided, look, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to regulators and and we're gonna say, look, mea culpa. We, you know, we sort of thought the rules were one thing. We understand that you guys view them as being another, you know, here, like we're we're coming to you with sort of like a, an accounting of all of this and we want to pay some fines and move on. And that was the plan, you, you know, sort of we were preparing this. We had sort of, you know, meetings with the board kind of every other month to, to go through this um, and go through progress on this right up until the day that I left. And on the day that my departure was announced, you know, we had drafted this sort of, you know, mutual press release that sort of said kind of, you know, the same sort of anodyne things that you always say when when someone leaves and, you know, sort of mutually on both sides, like, you know, sort of appreciation, that sort of thing. And then the company just issued a different press release. And it said Zenefits had these compliance issues because this this Parker guy didn't care about compliance and that and he's the issue. But but now he's gone. Um, And then it sort of continued from there.
2: Do you know now what happened between the review of that press release that everyone's like, this is the one, and then there's this period of time, and then this other press release? Do you now know the sequence of events that led up to the second press release?
1: What, what I was told is that there was just always a plan to issue a different press release, that there was this sort of kind of sort of fake exercise with um, – you know, it was this exercise with me and Kim from Andreessen Horowitz and, and David in the background drafting this press release that was never going to be issued.
0: And for the listeners, that's David Sachs. OK, got it. Because they needed a scapegoat.
1: Why they decided to go in this direction, like, I, you know, I don't to this day, I don't really understand. One of my, like, firm beliefs is that, you know, when I left, I thought that Senefits was going to be really successful. And I thought, look, you know, the company was facing just enormous commercial challenges. You know, like a lot of our growth um, had sort of started to evaporate. Things that were working for us top of funnel had sort of had gone away. You know, we were missing our plan. You know, investors were frustrated. We were upside down on gross margins. It's my belief that like, you know, in retrospect, had had I stayed, I would have been able to kind of turn it around. And I thought when I was leaving... That by not sort of getting into a war with the investors, I was sort of leaving, you know, like David, like maybe David would figure out the sort of commercial side of this. But what happened instead is David sort of became the company's chief antagonist and was sort of going out and saying, you know, as CEO, like this company's unethical, you know, they're, you know, doing all these bad things. And, and it was really hard. The company didn't recover from that. It didn't, you know, it didn't make the company successful. It sort of like buried it um and i don't to this day i don't really know why i mean i have you know kind of like my own theories um but one of the things my my theory on this <clears throat> is that david had this sort of artful way of describing the licensing issues and the compliance issues at Zenefits, and so there's this video of him at TechCrunch Disrupt. Um, he was talking with Connie Laszlo's about Zenefits, and he has this slide in a deck that he presents where he sort of had three bullet points. And the first bullet point was I'm paraphrasing here, but but the first bullet point was like, um, it's no secret that Zenefits has you know huge compliance issues. Um, and bullet point two was the culture of the sales organization is broken. And bullet point three was. The sales organization always reported directly to Parker and not to me. And the sort of implication of that sequence of bullet points was that the compliance issues were all on the sales team. And that actually wasn't true. It was sort of an artful kind of lie. And most of the the compliance violations, as it turns out, were on the account management team that reported right up to David like, look, as CEO, I'm responsible for the whole thing. So I'm accountable for, you know, the misses in all parts of the company. It was sort of always sort of strange to me that like David was attacking me for these licensing failures, 70% of which happened in, you know, his org and while he was he was running it. And that was like a very closely guarded secret. And I was under like enormous legal restrictions. And was was told I wasn't allowed to talk about it. So, you know, I would meet with regulators and Zenefits would send their attorney to those conversations with regulators. And they would they would ask me, like, why weren't people licensed in uh, in these other states? Like, what led you to believe that was okay? And the Zenefits attorney would step in and say, well, that's attorney client privilege communication. You know, we object to Parker answering the question because that touches on advice that Parker got. In his role as CEO of the company, and because it was advice that he was getting as CEO of Zenefits, this is a, a privilege, an attorney-client privilege communication that Zenefits owns the privilege on, not Parker, and so we don't want him disclosing that. And my lawyers explained to me, look, you, you can't you, you can't disclose it, and if you, if you do that, you know the company will sue you. Y- you know they'll stop. Stop paying your legal bills. I had sort of an enormous number of legal bills all of a sudden and really didn't have the financial resources without the company sort of paying for it um, to defend myself. And so, you know, I kind of didn't have a choice. I had to sort of, you know, keep it, you know, zipped and go from there. That really kind of never came out in all of this. Like David emerged from, from Zenefits as kind of the white knight of compliance. And I'm sort of guessing at this, but I think that in David's view, you know, there was some... Something that would attach itself to him, Um, you know. I don't think that David was out there to sort of purposefully, you know, screw up compliance either. I think it was a mistake, but I think it might have looked like, hey, you know, you know, hey, David, you were CEO of this company, you're you're a lawyer. Why why weren't you on top of this? And and I think he managed to sort of, you know, extract himself from the situation without without that sort of becoming a part of the narrative. And I think that's why he he did what he did. So the second piece of this. <clears throat> is, um, is the macro. Um, and what the macro was, is when I, when I was first applying to Y Combinator, I needed to build a prototype. And to do that, I needed to get my insurance license so that I could get planned data and pricing information from insurance carriers. And to get your insurance license, one of the requirements is you need to take a, a course. And this course is offered by, you know, a couple different vendors, but one of them is Kaplan and they have an online version that you can take. And when you take this online course, you sort of click through on their website, these pages of content. There are a few paragraphs on each page. There are like hundreds of pages, you know, across the course. Every few pages, there's a short quiz or exercise that you take. And at the end, you take a proctored in-person exam. And I got like a 94% on the exam. I knew my stuff. But at the end of the online course, I got to this blank page that had this timer counting down. And it said something like, "You have, you know, eighteen hours and however many minutes remaining. You have to stay on this page until the timer is complete." You know, after five minutes, this sort of dialog window opened up, and it said, "Hey, you know, it's been five minutes. Are you still there? Um, you'll be logged out for inactivity. Click here to stay logged in." And so I clicked there, and I sort of suddenly realized, like, man, I have to stay here and and keep clicking this button every five minutes for like the next eighteen hours or That's whatever. It's crazy. Um,
0: because it says you must be doing this for 40 hours or whatever.
1: It's right. There's a minimum. It's, you know, like 40 yeah. hours or 52 hours or something like that. Okay. Um, and so I kept there like clicking that button for hours. And eventually what I did is I wrote a three-line script. And what it did is it, it clicked, I'm still here. Then it waited five minutes. And then it was like, go to line 10 and repeat the process. And all that it did was, you know, maintain the session and kept you logged in. Um, what it what's important is what it didn't do. It didn't, you know, it doesn't take the test for you. It doesn't give you any of the answers. It doesn't advance you through the course content. It just kept you logged in. And, I, you know, I thought I had sort of hit hit like a bug in the system. I didn't think that, you know, the anyone really intended or wanted me to sit there sort of clicking that button for 18 right. hours. It turns out that's exactly what they want you to do. And so that was, you know, that was the macro and that ended up getting described sort of in in a lot of the media reports about this is you know insurance fraud and cheating on the licensing exam and stuff like that and i think it was naive I, w- I obviously wish i hadn't done it but again i think you know there wasn't i don't think it was it really was there was no intention to sort of cheat anything and i i think that like look my view was i knew my stuff i passed the test i got a great score i had sort of done put in the work to to sort of understand um sort of how this all worked and i you know in in sort of all of everything else i've done you know, at school and academically, you know, skipping ahead or learning things in less time has always been something that's like celebrated and not, you know, not something that you get punished for.
0: So just so I can clarify, like any reasonable human being is not going to want to spend 20 hours hitting the refresh button for every five minutes so that they don't get logged out. Like, it's just ridiculous. So I, I, I just think
2: what you did was
0: like something any reasonable person
2: who is capable of writing a script would have done. But people who take that test probably pay their children to keep clicking the button. I mean, it's obvious no one's really sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. that
0: clarifies that. You said a third thing, party culture.
1: The third thing is, that, that came out about Zenefits was uh, this, this party culture at the company. And w- what I'll tell you about this is it's just complete BS. I don't want to say there weren't issues with the culture at Senefits. There were. And a lot of them had to do with just the overwhelming amount of work that people were taking on. And sort of there was a real burnout culture at the company. But there really wasn't, like, as far as I could tell, like a huge party one. And, like, look, we had had beers in the office. And, you know, 8 p.m. on Friday, people would get together and have beers with their colleagues. But, you know, it was 8 p.m. on a Friday, and most people were still at work. And where this came from is there was a Wall Street Journal article and sort of the the origin of the, this Wall Street Journal article is that the landlord of our building at 303 Second Street in San Francisco sent an email to our office manager that said, "Hey, we found a a used condom in the stairwell in the sort of line that you guys are in. Can you please tell your employees that this is completely unacceptable behavior." And unfortunately, our office manager sent forwarded, you know, sent an email out about this to 1,600 people. And, you know, one of whom ended up forwarding this along to the Wall Street Mm -hmm. Journal, and it became a really big story. The thing is, and that story, by the way, got written and rewritten and rewritten.
0: Oh, yeah, that's juicy.
1: Sex in the stairwells of, you know, high-flying, you know, orgies at high-flying tech startup. And... You know, the thing is, is there, there are like 30 other companies in that building. It's not even clear that it was someone at It's benefits. not even clear it was um, someone
2: in the building. Let's be honest. Like, it could have been anybody.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Right? Um, but but that became this sort of scarlet S that was sort of came to really define the company um, in the media, even though I think it was really just sort of, you know an, you know, completely inaccurate. But those were sort of the three sort of big public controversies at Zenefits. It was the you know the licensing, the macro, and um, you know sex in the stairwells.
0: Okay. Well, I'm really glad that we got to the bottom of all three of those things. Let me just also say this is you're not saying this. I'm saying this. Like press, as we know, Carolyn, are eager for stories of founders misbehaving, and you know if they can latch on to anything. They'll twist it and they'll keep reusing it. And I can't tell you how many examples there are of some lie that was told about someone at YC that's just perpetuated, you know, over and over and over. And then it appears in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And now it's a fact. With all these like three things, do you think that David Sachs or the board or whoever made the decision sort of used these blown out of proportion stories as a pretext to
1: oust you? Zenefits had some very real problems, and the the very real problems were were about the business and the financials of the business. They all really stemmed from, I think, this original sin decision that I made at the company, which was in the early days of Zenefits, everything was working so well for us. I mean, we would – you know, I had come from a company before Zenefits where, man, we would try sort of five things to try and get customers – and you know four of them would fail miserably and one of them would mostly fail but would work kind of like just enough that you know it it would sort of inspire us to keep going for another 6 months and pivot the company and try and get something to work and we kept doing that for like 7 years um before i left and started zenefits wow and then at zenefits it was like the complete opposite um at zenefits it was like we would try five things and they would all work and we would try two things that we thought would never work and those would like kind of <laughs> work too and so it was this great example of just you know, what things look like when it's working and when the market is sort of sucking the company into the market or the void is kind of sucking the company into the market. And so our biggest fear was that actually, you know, there were going to be fast followers, that there were going to be other companies. We had sort of uncovered this pot of gold um, and there were going to be other businesses that were going to sort of establish a toehold. and, and And I thought that we really had to sort of suck up all of the oxygen in the room, and basically say, look, we've got to soak up all the demand. We can't leave room for someone else to come in because if if we do that, it's unclear when things like sort of settle out. Um, you know, at some large scale, we thought there were going to be network effects in the business, but it was not super clear. Like if someone else was willing to push the gas pedal all the way to the floor, would we even be, you know, having discovered the market, would we be the ones that the sort of lens of the market was centered on? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we weren't able to sort of grow and sort of take up, you know, all of the oxygen in the room. And so we made this decision, the sort of insight behind Zenefits was really that, you know, there was all of this before Zenefits, you know, companies tend to have multiple systems for HR and benefits. So they would have, you know, something for payroll, something for 401k, you know, most of the sort of for small businesses, most of the stuff around insurance was, was offline and you handled it via the fax machine. And so you'd have, You'd have to fax in an application for medical insurance, for dental insurance, for vision insurance for each employee. And so we sort of said, look, you can put the insurance pieces online and then you can do all of this together in one place. And that just dramatically cuts down on the administrative work required for people to run the HR systems within their company. And so what we said we'd do is early on, we said, look, companies have all of this administrative work. We're going to take all of that administrative work on ourselves. We're going to do it for them behind the scenes. And over time, we're going to work to automate it and work to sort of put it all in software. You kind of had to do it that way because the insurance companies didn't have like good systems. You know, you, were, you still had to interface with them via the fax machine or often manually. And so it created this – it meant that Zenefits was sort of secretly behind the scenes, you know, this giant sort of operational machine. And there were kind of two problems that, that – or a couple of problems that we faced with that. And one was that when you scale something up with manual ops, it's very hard. It's much harder to come back later and automate it. Um, if you sort of start with automation, you can gradually scale out the automation over time. But the system, it just kind of grows too complicated when you start with ops and it gets really big to come back. And so – the automation was constantly running behind. You know, we we had these estimates on like when it was going to be fully automated and it was constantly getting pushed out. The second problem is that whenever you're doing something manually, there's an error rate around that. And so what customers started noticing is that, you know, in that error rate, if you're really good, it might be 99, you know, you might be 99% mm-hmm. accurate or even 99.9%, but you're just, you're never 100%. And customers started noticing that every once in a while, there were these sort of unexplained errors where things would go wrong in these critical areas of their business where they didn't want errors to exist right. at all. And the sort of conventional wisdom on Zenefits shifted from, you know, hey, this is incredible to, well, the, the concept behind this is amazing, but the execution sort of leaves something to be desired. And once that happened, everything that was working for us top of funnel stopped working and it stopped working very quickly. And it And it happened just a few months after we had raised this enormous amount of money, at this very high valuation, having sort of promised investors that the top line revenue of the company was going to grow at these sort of really abnormally high rates. And so, you know, the the growth sort of plateaued, you know, the burn was enormous because it's really expensive to be doing things in this way. Our gross margins weren't great because, again, it's really expensive to be doing things in this way. And investors were freaking out. This was, you know, our lead investor was Andreessen Horowitz. It was their single largest investment ever.
0: Really? Oh, I didn't
2: know that.
1: At the time, it was their single largest investment in any company.
2: What year was that?
1: Uh, This was in uh, 2015, and so it was in that context that suddenly, you know, these compliance issues came to the fore. And like, look, I mean, the, the the compliance issues were real, but I truly believe that, like, look, had the business been working there's no way that that would have led to you know the company we all all would have sort of locked arms and sort of resolved these issues with regulators and it would have been you know a bad press cycle for a week or two and then we would have moved on um and that's what i believed you know even when i left that was sort of what what i believed was going to happen that you know we were look i i was going to leave the company but we were going to you know we were going to sort of resolve this stuff you know sort of arm in arm um, even after my departure. And then it just it changed overnight.
2: And then that's not what happened. Oh, I was just gonna say, I don't get the strategy, though. Like, the strategy was going to be let's lock arms and just go say mea culpa to the regulatory authorities, pay a fine and move on. And this was a completely different strategy. But how is the strategy they picked going to help? What were the company's real problems? Like, how does that all weave together?
1: I mean, it didn't. So in, in retrospect, what happened at the board meeting where I agreed to resign, Lars and, and Ben laid out. You know, they sort of said, "Look, we want you. We want you to stay around. We want you to stay on the board. We want you to um, continue to, to run product at the company. We want David to step in as CEO, and we want to keep David as CEO for six to twelve months, and then we're going to bring you back as CEO." And I, you know, I had had this sort of bad experience at my previous company where. I had kind of stayed around for, for a while, like after, you know, after I had been sort of demoted and, you know, I, I sort of told him, look, I'm like, I think clean breaks are the best thing here. So if you guys want me out, I'm out. And, you know, Lars turned to me and said, well, what are you, what are you going to do? Um, You know, what, what's your kind of next step here? Um, And I said, well, I think I'll start another company. And now that, that was not, that was not a popular answer. And Lars sort of said, look, i I, you don't have it in you. I don't think that there's any way. You're not going to start another company. And I think that, you know, they were worried about, about me competing with Zenefits or doing something. There was an enormous, over the next like year, there were just like enormous efforts from the company to try and get me into an enforceable non-compete agreement.
2: Pretty tough in California.
1: So non-competes are not enforceable in California, except... There are some exceptions, and one exception is if they are signed in connection with a stock sale transaction. Right, right. And so the, the, the effort was always to arrange some kind of stock transaction that could be paired with a non-compete that then would be enforceable. Um, and there were, I mean, some – really extreme efforts here. I mean like you know at one point so first I mean I actually didn't intend to start another company in this space at first. And then what happened is it just it became clear to me that David like in my view David was not trying to make Zenefits work. He was sort of the company's chief prosecutor in the media. He was he fired all the wrong people, he promoted all the wrong people. Um you know, he canceled all the wrong projects. It was and, and and so what it, what it looked like to me was David's you know just like you know sinking the company, um, driving it into the ground. And I didn't totally understand why. It, you know, it seemed like you know it was sort of to help with his his personal reputation. But it seemed like, man, you know, for whatever reason, this thing that I thought Zenefits was going to be is not going to happen. The company's going to go to zero. That was when I decided, like, okay, you know, I I'm I'm going to start a new thing and start from zero. And I viewed it as like. Very much like I was going to continue what we had started at Zenefits. And, you know, I went from having, you know, $600 million in the bank and, you know, 1,500 employees and an existing product and, you know, know, 75 million revenue to having zero, zero and zero and starting over from square one. But I thought like, okay, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to rebuild a lot of this and we're going to go down the path that we would have gone down had David not come in and sort of like turn the company in a different direction. And that was really to sort of expand from this idea of, you know, employee data, you know, all in one HR systems to employee data as this primitive for business software writ large, that the idea was that for the same reason, you kind of wanted to have one place to set up an employee or to onboard them across all your different HR systems, across payroll and 401k and, you know medical insurance and dental insurance and so on and so forth you actually kind of wanted the same thing across the entire company you wanted that to work for it for you know get, getting them set up in email and slack and dropbox and salesforce and github and you you wanted it to work for you wanted to ship out their computer and their laptop and get them set up in all of these other places as well and sort of broadly manage employee data across the business and that was sort of the idea behind Rippling but at one point, you know, when we were in YC, so when Rippling was in Y Combinator shortly before demo day, David heard that, you know, through the grapevine that, that I had started this company that was, you know, going to compete with Zenefits and sort of got an inkling of kind of what we were up to. And right away, there was a um, – one of the investors in our Series C round at Rippling um, was Insight Partners in New York. And Insight delivered a, a, a lawsuit to my lawyers – so they didn't file it, but one of the things that lawyers sometimes do is you know, as part of a negotiation is they will say, look, we have written this lawsuit, and we're going to you know, drop it on your doorstep, and we're going to file it you know, next week unless you settle with us. And so Insight dropped this lawsuit, and the company's lawyers, um, you know, David, David's attorney's called up my lawyers was like, it was like the same day or the next day or something and said, Hey, we heard you have this problem with this inside lawsuit. And they said, we can make this go away for you, but we're not going to make the lawsuit go away if Parker is competing with us. And so what we need is we need Parker needs to, you know, give us or sell us in some way, a bunch of stock and sign a non-compete that is going to say that for five years, Parker will not start a company that does anything in B2B software.
0: Because it's now enforceable, the non-compete in California, because you've sold a part of this stock.
1: Because there, as long as you exchange some stock as part of it, you can make it enforceable. I said, no way. You know, it would have, you know, it was, this was like, literally, it was right around demo day for YC with, um, with Rippling. And so I would have had to sort of give up doing Rippling. If I signed it and sort of, you know, I like it was sort of mortgaging my future. So I said no. And there was a huge fight. There were, ended up being enormous, you know, personal consequences for me of that. But uh, Insight ended up not filing the lawsuit. Um, so it ended up, you know, at least on, on the litigation side being a bluff.
0: It just causes my stomach to be in knots hearing the story.
1: It was basically. Sort of a a low grade intimidation tactic to try and force like a signing yeah. a non compete and and do a stock sale transaction to make it enforceable and they said look this is a lawsuit that um you know against against you personally uh, I had a decent amount of sort of financial difficulties through this period because you know I had sold some secondary at at Zenefits, but not so much that like I was going to be able to afford a lot of legal defense and so I had a pre-existing agreement as as most executives at at companies will have that I was indemnified you know by the company for you know my for legal defense as a result of you know things that came out of my role as the CEO of the business and so through all of this benefits was you know had to pay my legal bills but what was interesting about the the sort of threatened insight litigation is that if it said, "Oh, we don't have to pay your legal bills for that. That's your own personal thing. Like that's not." And so it was sort of engineered to be this thing where you know, hey, it would, it would actually be you know millions of dollars to defend this lawsuit that the company was say, well, we're not going to pay it. And so you know, you you know, sort of like you're you're kind of screwed on on that front. So you can't. You can't like even even if yeah. you think that you'll win the lawsuit, which which my, my lawyers are always very clear, like there's no there were no grounds for the litigation. You still need to spend millions of dollars defending it. That um, that was sort of money that I didn't really have. Of course. Of course.
0: OK, so you were being like threatened yeah. financially with this lawsuit. I believe also that Zenefits was using the press to blacken your reputation. Correct. For quite some time.
1: For like six months, there were just these ongoing daily or, or weekly attacks. And there were reporters that reached out to me and said, look, I get I get pitches from the company's PR reps, you know, every week about to write an article about you. And David, wow. like when when David took over, he hired this guy, Lanny Davis, who is sort of a crisis PR person who he represented the Clintons in Whitewater. He's He's gone on and, you know represented a bun- bunch, of sort of bunch of other folks, but he's, he's a very, you know, D- David has this philosophy about sort of, you know, media fights, um, that, that I think Lanny really sort of exemplifies. And so David, you know, sort of explained this to me at Zenefits when we got into this sort of fight with ADP, one of our competitors. And David's view is like, look, when you get into a fight with someone, you've got to attack, 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 and if the other guy rolls over and cries uncle, that means it's working and you've got to keep attacking, 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 attacking. And that was his sort of philosophy on doing this. And so that was what David kind of turned against me, you know, once, once he took over as CEO. And this continued for about six months and it stopped. Like I'm convinced it, it stopped only because of YC you know at at the time um you know Sam Sam Altman was run, was running YC and Sam came to me you know Sam was just talking with me about what was going on and I was sort of telling Sam about you know how hard all this was and I didn't hear anything for a few weeks and 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 sort of out of the blue Sam called me and said look you know I've spoken with Mark Andreessen and told him that you know he's risking his relationship with Y Combinator if these attacks continue and Mark went and spoke with David and told David that David was risking his relationship with a sixteen z if if he continued, and there was apparently you know a big a big fight mm-hmm. about about that and sort of a couple of other other people sort of like you know told me that they had sort of you know seen this or overheard it and then overnight it stopped like overnight, and there was still you know there was ongoing bad press. But there wasn't, it was very clear that there wasn't someone driving it. You know, there wasn't someone kind of trying to get, you know, more stories right. every single week. Um, and that's when it stopped.
0: Good work, Sam Altman. Yeah. Helping out Parker. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I can only imagine, and it's like, I wish I had been in closer touch with you at this particular moment. Because you must have you, you just been devastated at this point, beaten down, and just so demoralized.
1: It, I mean, it was it was really hard. I was super depressed. You know, I really kind of withdrew from. You know, I sort of spent, you know, sort of six to nine months just kind of like hiding at home, not really seeing many people or talking with with many folks, and you know, because it all it all sort of unraveled so quickly, and you know, but it really was. I mean, like, I mean, Je- I mean, Jessica, you you say you didn't do anything, but like, you know, YC was really. In, they they were you know they were like YC really stood by me through all of this and it was it was it, I think one of the incredible things about about the program is there was you know I was really radioactive for a while like people would you know when we announced our Series A you know people got attacked for investing in me like why would you invest in this like awful per- person and you know you know supporting me was like sort of a deep sort of moral failing. And and YC was, was like you know the they were the most consistent supporters and and Jessica you were you know sort of in the first round of seed investors and into Rippling so so I will always mm-hmm. be like deeply grateful for that.
0: Oh well, I'm just glad now that we can kind of move on to the the new part of the story and talk about Rippling. What gave you the strength to be like I'm going to do this again because I would have quit.
1: So there there were two things. One is. One is that I, I really wanted this product to exist and it was just, I, I felt like Zenefits had sort of suddenly collapsed for all these crazy reasons that had nothing to do with the fundamental, you know, success of the approach, you know? And so I, I remember talking with persona who's my co-founder at, 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 at Rippling <clears throat> and Persano asked, why do you want to do this thing? That's kind of in the same area. And I said, I was like, look, nobody's going to build this if we don't. And And there's, there's $100 billion, like, lying on the floor, right over on the street, right there. And, and, like, you and I are the only people that can see it. And everyone's just kind of walking by oblivious. And, like, all we have to do is, like, go over there and pick it up. Like, we know, like, if we build this, it's going to work. This is what people want.
0: Prasanna was a YC founder, right? A diff- From a different company.
1: He was a YC founder. Um, he started a company called Like a Little. And then he worked with me at, he was an engineering director at Zenefits and then joined me to start Rippling.
2: I just want to take you back. You're, you're kind of at home hiding, feeling very depressed about all that's going on. What kind of got you out of that? Was there an event? Was there a conversation or was it just like time? Just, you just needed time. And then you sort of emerged and you're like, okay, I'm ready to do something new.
1: I, it took years to sort of snap out of that. I mean, I think it wasn't that I sort of came out of that. It, It was that, once I sort of realized that David was kind of like burying the company and it wasn't going to work, I thought you know look so one was i I wanted this product to exist, but the second piece of it was that i sort of was not good at you know there there' are some of the like David is an incredible polemicist like he's really you know he's an incredible writer and really good at sort of you know sort of framing these kind of like attack narratives and yeah, you, know, you see it with some of some of his political stuff now. But that was like I've never been like really good at that. And so I sort of thought, I'm not I can't I can't win on that on that front. And the only way for me to sort of um and I wasn't allowed, you know, I wasn't allowed to sort of talk about the things that I'm talking about with you guys or have been talking about with you guys right here. And so I thought the only way for me to sort of talk about this, to to speak in 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 some way to like my former colleagues to you know extended you know friends and family to the tech community to the media about these issues is is to build this specific company and build it into you know an enormous you know 100 billion dollar outcome and that if I did that that would you know make a statement and it would force like a reassessment and that was the thing <clears throat> that, that got me going. And so it wasn't that I wasn't depressed about all of this. It was that, you know, this, the, it, this felt like the only path forward was to do this and to make it, you know, sort of really successful. And that was, mm. you know, look over, over the last seven years, there are many other sort of, you know, things that I love about Rippling. I love the product. I, I really like the people that I work with and enjoy that an enormous amount, but there was a long period of time where, you know, that was, you know sort of that was the first thing on my mind every day when I woke up in the morning and the last thing every night when I went to bed and that was the thing that sort of got me to sort of put one foot in front of the other.
0: Oh wow. Um on the subject of Rippling, I know it centralized all employee data for its customers, but can you talk a little bit more about it and what makes it unique?
1: There's one critical insight behind Rippling and that is that employee data is really widely distributed across an organization and and importantly, not just inside of HR systems. And because of that, I think the right way to think about employee data is as a primitive for a lot of business software that companies use. There's sort of a a problem that this situation creates for businesses that, that we can solve. And there's this related corollary opportunity for Rippling. And the problem that it creates is that You know, this sort of fragmented employee data across your organization and across all these different business systems is secretly the cause of a very large percentage of the administrative work required to run a company. And you see this as a company in stark relief whenever you hire someone because you need to set them up in all these different places. And you don't just need to set them up in HR systems. You need to set them up in every business system that your company uses. And one of the great things about Rippling that we see is we've had third parties go out and look at businesses that use Rippling and businesses that use anything other than Rippling and look at you know, people um, that uh, the, the number of people that those businesses have in HR, IT, and finance. And one of the things that they found is that <clears throat> at every stage of growth, companies that don't use Rippling have about twice the number of people in those GNA roles in HR, IT, and finance as businesses that do use Rippling. And it's because of the sort of additional administrative burden that you have if you're using really anything other than Rippling. Um, and and it gets quite extreme at like a thousand employees. I think it's something like, you know, 46 uh, people for businesses that don't use Rippling versus 28 people for companies that do use Rippling.
0: That's amazing.
1: And so there, you know, there's a real operational, you know, Rippling, makes your company more operationally excellent because you don't have a bunch of people doing things in this sort you know, doing a bunch of administrative work that you otherwise would have. The second sort of corollary opportunity comes from the fact that, you know, uh, companies that make business software, and I don't mean companies that make HR business software, I mean all business, all companies that make business software, they're kind of aware of this dynamic. They sort of know that if they ask you for a lot of information about your employees, It just means a lot of work to implement their software because now you've got to load all that data into their system and you've got to maintain it. You know, anytime you hire someone, anytime something changes, you've got to make changes in their system along with all the others. And so companies that make business software, they tend to ask for as little information about your employees as they possibly can. And that's led to this situation where companies, business software just knows much less about your employees than it ought to know. And that has a whole set of product implications. It means that you know most business software you know, the, is dramatically under-permissed because um, in Rippling, you can set up role-based permissions that are inherited based on someone's job or function within the organization. But in most business software, what happens is everyone has no administrative permissions at all by default. And you need to click and make someone an admin one person at a time, which means you don't do it very much. And you end up with this kind of bank teller situation. In most business software where there are a very small number of admins and everyone needs to sort of wait in line for those people to kind of help them do their job, Um, just like the way you used to have to, you know, if you wanted to check your Hmm. account balance or make a deposit or a withdrawal, you had to wait in line for like the bank teller to do that for you. A second example of this is most business software is really weak on approvals, things like approvals, because yeah. they don't understand relationships between people within the organization. Um, they might know who someone's manager is, but they don't know who the VP of their department right. is or their HR business partner or their strategic finance associate. And often you want to route approvals to people based on those types of relationships as well. Um, and reporting is weak in most business software because in analytics, um, because... A lot of the way you take transactional data and turn it into like insights about your company is you want to look at it by department, by manager. You want to zoom in on a particular work location. You want to filter out your interns. Look at only people that have two years of tenure, and and so it often a lot of you know the sort of data stacks that people put together. You know what what you know today we call like ETL and data warehouses and BI tools is really about you know getting all of this data joined and transformed in a way that you can you know combine it with org data to get to sort of insights about the organization. And so the opportunity for Rippling is really like look what if you know what if you didn't if you had a different set of assumptions like if you didn't start from the assumption that you're just not going to have access to this data about employees and about the organization, there's a lot of business software that you would build very differently um, and it would be I think much better, as products, um, there are a lot of product capabilities that you would have <clears throat> in all of these other areas if you started with employee and organizational data deeply embedded in the foundation of the product.
0: And is this what you refer to as a compound startup?
1: Yeah, and so that's when I talk about okay. you know, a compound startup, that's what I mean. It's, it's saying, look, we're going to build a whole suite of like deeply integrated and interoperable products that are all built on top of, you know, this foundation of, you know, at the very base layer, this just deep understanding of all of your employee data. We call it the employee graph because it's this sort of graph-based representation of not not just like, you know, employees and their department and their work location, but also data that's coming in from other other parts of the product or even other third-party products and, you know, information about, you know, their GitHub pull requests and their their, um, the opportunities that are in their name in Salesforce. And, you know, and that, <clears throat> that sort of forms the foundation of that data layer. And then on top of that, a set of what we call middleware components or platform component capabilities that are like shared uh, sort of capabilities across all of our products. So you know, things like analytics and permissions and workflow automations and approvals and a few other things that then you take as reusable Lego blocks and you use to then build sort of all as the sort of, you know, underlying structure for a lot of different business software. Yeah. You know, our our goal at Rippling has been to launch five new SKUs every year. And so, you know, we we were sort of constantly seeding or nucleating new product organizations to build these new products on top of this sort of larger system. And the advantage is always that these products are, you know, deeply understand your organization in ways that their competing standalone products don't. We tend to invest really deeply on these sort of fundamental components of business software, you know, analytics and permissions and approvals and workflows and mm-hmm. things like that. And so they tend to win on those things because competitors will kind of build those things as sort of afterthoughts. Um, but yeah. because we're building them across all these products, we can invest much more deeply. And everything's all in one system with one UX and sort of, you know, in um sort of much easier to use for for that reason
2: as well. Well, I'm glad you brought up competitors because going back, that was one of the driving concerns at Zenefits, right? You were talking about how you know, you guys really wanted to make sure you were the ones and that you banished all competitors along the way. Different mindset probably for Rippling or maybe not. Like you tell me, what what how do you think about competitors now?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I mean, Rippling competes with a, a ton of different companies. I think the mistake that that we really made at Zenefits is, I think, you know, we 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 did this thing, you know, we to sort of grab market share ver, very early on, which was not scalable. Um, and I think that was okay for you know at first. I mean, y, YC's mantra is like one of YC's sort of pieces of advice is do things that don't scale, and I think that's absolutely right early on. Right, but the sort of counterpoint to it is like eventually you need to scale them. And we really didn't. And that was the problem. And so the the issue, I think the the sort of the real sort of mistake at Zenefits was doing all of this manually. And, and, and we should have, you know, maybe we should have done that during YC, but then we should have really focused on automating that before we started growing again. And that was the thing. We did that very differently at Rippling. And so at Rippling, it took us a long time to launch. I mean, we had you know for for 2 years the company was like 50 engineers and me and a few other people but mostly engineering and we sort of built this thing end to end but all in software you know there were no operations of any kind mm-hmm. inside the company for a long time and actually until we were at like 5 million in arr we didn't have anyone in support in the company and so you know i did a lot of the customer support the engineering team did a lot of customer support for their specific products, and it was only, you know, once once you know we got to some really large scale that we started bringing in a support team. But it sort of forced us to kind of just drive down all of the operations work inside the business.
2: When did you get an HR team? We hired
1: an HR team reasonably late inside. I mean, when I was when I'm talking about operations, I meant more like customer operations. Mm-hmm. So it was like you know, things to get people enrolled in insurance and, you know, and so right. and so we were trying to make sure that everything ran on software rather than people for customers. Um, but actually, one of yeah. the things that, that's still true about Rippling is that I'm the only full admin for Rippling in Rippling.
0: This is going to be my question. Oh, I wanted cool. to confirm if you are the HR administrator <laughs> for Rippling. Well, that <laughs>
2: That's where I was going with my question too.
1: <laughs> so so to be clear, we we also have a great HR team that does, you know, hel, you know, helps with other types of things. And obviously it's very important, you know, from, you know, things like compliance and, you know, making sure that things don't go off the rails that you have like really good, strong in-house HR. So we have a great HR team, but, but I mean, but in terms of like a lot of the administrative work around HR, that's something that, that I handle personally. So I, I run payroll for Ripley and has 2,000 employees across a dozen countries and I run payroll for everyone. I, you know, wow. manage employee benefits, manage a lot of sort of IT, you know, app provisioning rules, things like that. Um, I, you know, approve, you know, every expense above $10 in the company, um, you know, because we have a, a an expense, manag- expense management software. And so that's amazing. That, a lot of why I think the product works so well for customers and why you see that customers are able to, you know, have so many fewer people in these functions is because um, we spend a lot of time working to sort of make it possible for me to keep doing that. Um, And that forces you to kind of constantly automate more and drive down the level of administrative work. And that then sort of, you know, there are benefits that accrue to all of our customers from, from those investments.
0: And for any founders out there who are listening, I need to point out that like we get really excited when we hear of founders who are eating their own dog food.
1: It's a huge advantage because look, I, I promise you, look, we have we have payroll competitors that don't don't use their own system for payroll. Um, you know, SMB payroll systems that run on workday, you know, because they can't they can't use their own system. And, you know, I I know, you know, the, the CEOs of you know ADP and Paylocity and Paycom and UKG and you know they're not they don't run payroll for their companies. And so I think that doing that you know it, it gives me a I think it gives me a right to an opinion about the product. You know it it yeah. it like a lot of you know like I can one of I think the great pieces of advice that YC always has for founders is to talk to customers. And that's great advice, but but another way to kind of do that is to is to really be the customer yourself, and then you can have you know those conversations in your own head, and and they're they're often like much higher fidelity and can happen much more quickly.
0: You're your own user. Yeah, I love it. Can I go back quickly to this sort of kind of modular structure, or you you know where you try to launch the new products and stuff? I've also heard that you hire a huge number of founders to sort of run those business units. Is that on purpose that you've done this or is it just worked out that way?
1: What Ripley is doing by, when we're building all these different products in parallel, it's it's very much counter to the conventional wisdom on how you're supposed to do this. Um, because the way you're supposed to do this is to focus on one extremely narrow thing and go deep on that. And I, I happen to think that that advice is, is, is wrong or at least um limiting and that I think that the way that we've built business software over the last 20 years is is mostly incorrect and it it's been to build a lot of these sort of narrow point solution products that inhabit these sort of local minima from a client perspective but actually like the global minima is to is to take this compound approach and have you know, one system that kind of does a whole bunch of things for companies that the way we build software today, and this, this is not my idea. I'm stealing this from someone else, but it's kind of like if you bought a car and instead of buying a car, you bought a steering wheel from one company and a chassis from another, and, you know, a carburetor from a third, and, you, you know, you sort of brought it home and sort of tied it all together with scotch tape and glue. And, you know, then of course like when you're driving down the road, you'd have like parts like falling off and like, you know, you know, it wouldn't work very well. You know, the right way to do this or the the sort of global minima, the ultimate product for customers is to do this sort of to do all in one, and not just all in one, but allest and oneest. And so that's the the approach at Rippling. One of the things so we knew when we were starting Rippling that this was that this was unconventional. Um and so we were always you know, we, we thought like, look, this compound approach was both something that could become like our biggest enduring advantage, but was also like, you know, if the company doesn't work, why will it not work? And it was like because it's like really hard to do this and there are a bunch of reasons why this is not supposed to work. And so a lot of, you know, our focus at the company has actually been on making this particular approach to building software work. Um, And finding all of the different places where it breaks down and then finding solutions for each of each of those things. And there are a bunch of places where it breaks down or places where we've had to find sort of like really clever solutions. But one of them, one of the things that you absolutely need um, is you need to be able to sort of create these small teams that are that are individually very focused and sort of, you know, um, can sort of run quickly to sort of build products within Rippling. And, you know, the best profile of person for doing that are people that have had this experience of starting a company. And so we hire a lot of former founders. I think the, the last time we looked at this, you know, was like a year or two ago. And I think we had something like 50 people that had started companies at Rippling, um, including Wow. Yeah. Including a whole bunch of, of former YC founders that work at Rippling and um in a variety of different roles, but many of them have, you know, started and are leading um, you know, individual individual products um and sort of business lines um within Rippling. I love
0: that. That makes me so happy. Yeah, it's great. Speaking of which, you know how you were saying you have this sort of underlying system that has all the employee data and sort of s- seamlessly just works amongst all these different business units. Because that underlying operating system or technology, if you will, is so robust, will that make it easier to sort of introduce AI into different things if you want to do that? Do you, are there any plans for that?
1: My take on, on AI is, um, I mean, first, I'm like, I'm really skeptical of companies that like, sort of issue press releases announcing that they're, they're now an AI company. Um, so I, like, so like, one of the things that <clears throat> one of my goals <laughs> is to like, never do that, And, and I also think that like, um, I think that like when, when people incorporate, you know, chat GPT into their products, I think they're actually incorporating the wrong part of it. They're, they're sort of copying the chat interface. And I think the chat interface is a bug and not a feature. Um, and, and that, that nobody actually wants to Mm -hmm. chat with their payroll software or their expense management software. And, and that, but there are a bunch of ways that you can incorporate or that you should incorporate, Sort of some of the the ability to work with unstructured data and the capabilities that that brings into your product, and so like I guess like my my sort of thesis about Rippling and AI, and we're we're sort of very early in, in 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 kind of doing this, is that a lot of the B two B AI use cases will end up requiring like a deep understanding of your organization and your company, you know, like almost. Yeah. Anytime that you want to sort of do something AI related with employees, and again, that's not that's not just an HR software. It might you know could be in any sort of vertical, you know, B two B software vertical. It it kind of matters. Like you need to understand is this person is this person a, a junior IC employee or are they the VP of a department? Are they in engineering or in customer support? You know, are they in San Francisco or in Bangalore? Are they an intern, a contractor, or a W-2 employee? What teams are they on? You know, what sort of all of that context about their job and role and function and their relationships to other employees within the organization is a really important input for almost anything that you might want to do from an AI perspective um, in a B2B software context. And so that when we think about AI, it's always about. Sort of what are what are the the types of applications that require this sort of deep contextual understanding of of your company, um, and that that's sort of the those are sort of the areas that that I expect that we'll focus on.
0: Okay, we won't hold you to anything specific. <laughs> How was Y Combinator different? How was your experience different between the winter twenty thirteen session and uh, twenty seventeen that you? you went through it twice yeah so the, i mean
1: the first time i did y combinator i mean it was it was the three most productive months of my life it was an incredibly incredibly intense experience and i think it was intense both because the the yc program is like designed to do that it's very effective at doing that and i think i think the 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 real value of the program which i only i only came to understand once i was doing it Um, Is that YC is just great at sort of creating a whole bunch of urgency inside of your company right from day one. And the the challenging thing, one of the challenging things I've always found about starting a company is like it feels superficially like being unemployed. You know, like you're kind of sitting around on your couch, you know, screwing around on the Internet And like, if you don't get anything done on any particular day, like nothing happens. Like nobody gets mad at you. You don't have customers that are yelling at you. And so it's really hard to get in this groove of just moving quickly. Um, But that's like absolutely critical for making the company successful. And I think YC with like, you know, having this cadence of dinners where, you know, it's sort of once a week, but not, not five days a week, you know, um, you, you know, it's, it's like just precisely tuned to sort of create a lot of urgency and you sort of look around feels like everyone else is accomplishing something and it creates a lot of pressure for you to do the same that is what has always been so powerful about yc for me and that was very true for us the first time around there were a few things i think made it really different the first time around so one was um i i just remember pg's like opening talk to the batch and it was really incredible and i had you know, I had come off of this sort of seven years of working at another company where things were not working. And PG at one point sort of said, look, there are, I mean, there were many, many really great lines in this talk. And I don't, I don't remember all of them, but I remember he sort of said, look, there are two or three of you in this room that have what it takes to be really successful founders. And, you know, the rest of you probably don't like, that's okay. Like there are other things that you can do, but I, you know, I, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I hope it's me. And one of the other things that was – that really sort of dialed it up a notch for us is that there were – there was another company in our batch that was doing the same thing that we were doing um, called Simply Insured. And they started in a slightly different area and then then pivoted and we were kind of doing – Oh,
0: yeah. I think they pivoted into it.
1: And I remember – so for us, it was just the level of urgency was just extra high because we would see – them like talking to someone at dinner and it was like they're talking to our customers and 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 the reality is is every company like your competitors are out there <laughs> but you often yeah. like you don't have to confront that in quite as viscerally a way as we did in in, in Y Combinator in that sort of first go round the third thing as i remember having office hours with with PG and I joined, um, so I, I joined Y Combinator as a solo founder and then Lux, my co-founder at Zenefits, joined a few weeks later. And, you know, I had built like the barest outlines of a prototype. I mean, there was not, I mean, we were so far from having like a real working product. And I remember meeting with PG early on and saying, look, you know, and obviously YC had said, you got to launch early. You got to, you know, get, start selling to customers. You got to do all this before demo day. And so I said, okay, I've mapped this out. And we think if we really push, we can get a product live, you know, by like March 15th, and that'll give us two weeks to sell before demo day. And PG looked at us and said, you, you can't do that. You got to launch. You got to launch by the first week of February. No matter what, that's just not enough time. You know, I said, well, there's just no way Like, there's no, you know, it's already like, you know, the second week of January, like we can't build this thing in, in three weeks. It's not possible. And he kind of looked at us and said, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Um, like, you might as well, <laughs> you might as well give up and like go home because like your company's <laughs> not going to work if you can't get this live by the first week of February. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I already failed, you know, like what, <laughs> what are we going to And so, and so Lux and I, we, we focused on this and we figured out, we figured out this way and like, you know, and, and we just really pushed ourselves and figured out a way. And we ended up launching like, you know, not the first week of February, but the second week of February. And it actually made a really big difference because um, we launched and TechCrunch wrote an article about us that said, you know, hey, a company doing this interesting thing, like doing insurance online, and <clears throat> you know, all all this sort of interesting stuff, innovative stuff. And then Simply Insured launched like two weeks later, and they there was an article about them that was like weird. There's this company uh-huh. like copying Zenefits, you know, like why? Where did they come from? And <clears throat> um, and so it actually made a yeah. really big difference um, to to the company, um, and was absolutely the right advice. Um, and I think like the second time around, like YC was still a great program. You know, it, it, it was not as intense for me personally. And I think in part because I had done it before. And so I was doing it. I wanted to recapture that same intensity. Like that was why I did it the second time around. I thought it was really yeah. important to go back and, you know, be right right back at, at square one. But it, it, was not, it was not like totally the same, I think, in part because I had done it before, um, in part because um, there was no Simply Insured. In the batch, quite frankly, and so it was not. And then also because you know, I think PG, PG uh, as much as like you know the the partners there are great. It was not. It was not the same without um, without you guys there, without PG there.
0: Aww. Um,
1: And oh, so I I'm actually rem- tell them that I remember there was there was this like moment in office hours or in the in the sort of you know small batch meetings where there was a company that was building a a, a sort of a assistant. Um, like an AI assistant built into sort of Android. And one of the partners <clears throat> sort of asked them, how long do you think it'll take for you guys to get something live that will be, you know, really useful for just one person? And the, you know, the founders sort of thought about it and they said, you know, I think if we really push, we can get something live that's useful for one person by demo day. And I thought like, like, you know, like they're going to get it. Like I, I, I could just wait to see what happened. But then the partner sort of said, "Like, okay, that's great," and then and then sort of moved on. I was like, "Oh, like it's it's a little bit different." I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I look, I get that there's a balance between, you know, sort of how how much sort of urgency and anxiety like people can absorb about this stuff, you know, and there there's probably a balance there. But I, I thought I remember thinking like, "Huh, it's not like totally the same as it was before."
2: Also, maybe different because group dynamic versus one on one. I, I mean it sounds like in when PG was cracking the whip on you, it was just you and he and your co-founder probably. But yeah, it's in harder, a group office hour sure. dynamic, I think maybe you
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a little <laughs> bit of a gentler. It was approach, definitely it, perhaps. Perhaps. it felt it felt a little a little kinder and gentler, which is you know, they're both they're both good things mm. about that and and some you know, maybe something that you miss.
0: Hang so. on now though. Now we're getting I've just realized something. So you're going through YC the second time, demo day. Did you raise money? Mu- money after demo day or was it sort of before or what what was the timing of when you raised the money and wasn't there some attempt to um kibosh the round
1: so we ended up we raised a a a pretty decent seed round um earlier on um in the program and there were a couple of reasons why we did that but uh, among them quite frankly is like one of the big ones was just there was so much like while I was going through YC with Rippling, there was a lot that was still happening with Zenefits. Okay, and so one of, quite frankly, we wanted to just show that like there were still you know investors that supported me, and so one of our investors uh, told me said, "There's there's one reason to invest in Rippling." Mm-hmm. And there's one reason not to invest in Rippling and they're both the same reason. Um, The reason, reason being my, my involvement with the company. And, um, and so there were always, there were always a lot of investors that came out on, on sort of, you know, there were people that came out on both sides of that, that dynamic, but there were always enough that, you know, believed in, believed in me and believed in the business that, that they invested, that we were always like, you know, did great. But when we did our series a, you know there were. I mean, we ended up with a ton of term sheets, and Mamoon from Kleiner Perkins ended up leading the round. But it it was a controversial round, and and there were a bunch of investors that that backed out. I had a general partner meeting scheduled with Benchmark, and you know the GP that I was working with there called me up on a Sunday night and said, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, so the GP uh, general partner meeting you get, but for the listeners who might not know. What that is, it's sort of the penultimate step in a fundraising process where you meet with the full partnership, and if it goes well, you might get a term sheet after that. And so we had a, and they usually happen on Mondays. And so on Sunday night, the benchmark GP called me up and said, "Look, I'm sorry, but um, Bill Gurley is poker buddies with with David Sachs, and just you know had a conversation with him, and so we have to cancel the GP meeting." Um, and you know, same thing happened. Something similar happened with Greylock and. You know, even Mamoon at, at KP had a, had a run in with David, you know, after, after we signed a term sheet, you know, David sort of found out about it, got, you know, really upset and had sort of a very, um, you know, sort of a huge confrontation with him about it. So there was, there was this sort of behind the scenes effort to kind of derail the fundraising. And then I think after, after the Series A, that sort of mostly went away. It sort of stopped from
0: there. Wow. What a story. I'm glad Mamoon stood his ground and got the Series A done. Okay, so after all of that, when you measure results by what software has been created, do you think that the world is net ahead with Rippling?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, so first, I mean, I think it's important to say, like, look, we're not we're not curing cancer at, at Rippling, and so <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't I don't want to sort of like. I think, you know, it's a mistake to look, you know, sort of, you know, be too sort of like, oh my God, you know change you know, every tech company is like changing the world in some way. And, but we, you know, I look, I think we, we have a lot of customers that are doing that. I think, you know, like, you know, look, Anderle one of our biggest clients and they, you know, I think they're like doing great things for, you know, the United States and, and, and for sort of the conflict with between Ukraine and Russia. And <clears throat> that's a really important company. Um, and I, you know, look, we're very small, you know, sort of part of everything that, that they're doing, but, you know, to the extent that there are a lot of companies out there that can focus on, you know, focus a little bit more on, you know, their, their own products and what they do. And, you know, if we can make that a little bit easier and a little more efficient, I, I think that's, that's really cool.
0: Good. You're the world is net ahead. That's how I phrase the question. Not are you doing something as important as curing cancer, but is the world net ahead? Yes, it's <laughs> net ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it was a leading question, yeah. I think. I think that's fair. <laughs> it's a softball. <laughs> we, uh, well, Carolyn, let me ask you do you have questions? Because your yeah.
2: mind must be racing since you are a lawyer. I have a ton of questions, but actually, I, I want to ask one un- completely unrelated to anything legal. Um, so you are, Parker literally, um, the textbook example of formidability for YC. And when I say literally, I mean like we used to record interviews. I don't know if anyone at YC has ever told you this, but we actually rewatched your video a whole bunch of times (laughs) because we're like, this guy's so formidable. Like, can we find clues? Um, and the way he answers questions that tipped us off that like, he's so formidable. Anyway, I don't, it was, that was a long time ago. So I don't actually remember any, um, of the specific, you know, takeaways, but I guess I'd ask you, when you think about yourself, even like as a kid, as a teenager, whatever, were you always like this? Like, what makes you so formidable? Like, in other words, character, circumstance, combination of both. What do you think?
1: Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I mean, so I <clears throat> I think I've had a lot of like really big ups and downs in, in my life. And there are a lot of things that have that have been great for me. I mean, like I had, you know, wonderful parents, have wonderful parents, um, you know, but like I, I was, you know, they're fairly well off, and <clears throat> my dad is a corporate lawyer in New York, and um, and a lot of people have a lot of hardship, you know, in that area that I that I've never had. But you know, I also, um, you know, I had a really hard time in in middle school. Was just you know, sort of bad situation, like really sort of bullied and picked on, and and that I think has ended up being kind of like really defining <clears throat> for you know me like psychologically but then also you know i you know in college i spent um spent all my time working on the newspaper which was a lot of fun for me i think it ended up being kind of like mm-hmm. running a startup you know you're sort of running this this organization the
0: harvard crimson the right harvard
1: crimson yeah <clears throat> um yeah i was managing editor of the harvard crimson but i spent so much time doing that that i i failed out of school um and had to take a year off and that was that was just like really <laughs> hard and. um you know, and then um, just like,
0: by the oh, way, YC's co-founder, Robert Morris, you're not alone. A oh, lot wow. of great people had failed out, exactly. you know, and had to take a year
2: off. Yeah, that's why I was there laughing. Yeah. Sorry i sorry to, laugh to laugh at, at your pain. pain um, I was just like, oh, that's a yeah, familiar like, I mean, that, like, I mean, story. <laughs>
1: in, in tech, you know, there are a lot of for a lot of people, it's sort of like, oh, a you know, badge of honor, like tech, you know, college dropout. But it didn't it didn't feel that way to me. It felt like just like a deep and miserable failure at the time. Very sure. humiliating yeah. and embarrassing. You know, then then same thing with my first company, you know, I um, ended up, look, I mean, it was a hard, slow grind. It was, you know, seven years of just ongoing failure. And I think when that happens, different people react in different ways. But I think for for, for my co-founder and I, it was kind of like, I, you know, I, I sort of, uh, I haven't experienced this, so I don't know, but I sort of think of it as kind of like what it would be like to be you know, in a, in a marriage and, you know, a a child dies that, you know, just the other person constantly reminds you of everything that's going wrong. And it led to a lot of, you know, interpersonal conflict and it really ended, I think like the friendship that I had with him, but also resulted ultimately in, in me being sort of fired from the company and, and similar type of thing. Like I, I thought when I left, I thought I would never be able to do something. Like I thought my first company was going to go on to incredible success and I was not going to be a part of it. It was this incredibly depressing thing. And so I think, you know, there have just been like a a lot of, a lot of sort of really big ups and really big downs. I I don't like, sometimes people would say like, oh, you know, you learn so much from your failures. And I don't think I've, I've learned a lot from failure (laughs) except for, you know, how much it, it sucks and how, how much you really want to avoid it. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it, for anyone, I think it, it's like you know very very destructive. But I you know I do think that you know mm. if, like I don't, I don't know if I would describe. I mean, I, I, I'm like flattered that y, YC thinks that I'm formidable. But I'm like I think that like to to the extent that there's like <clears throat> like a certain kind of tenacity, um, you know, maybe that I think that's probably where it comes from.
0: We are such fans of yours. Well, thank you, and we're so proud of you. I mean, you're doing so well, and you're just there's so many things that aspiring founders could learn from you. We're so glad you know you're part of the YC community, and I know you recently came back to talk at uh, to one one of the first back in person dinners that they've done at YC, and that it was off the charts, That's pretty amazing. Awesome. John Levy, you know, aka J Levy, Carolyn's husband was just raving about it, saying it was one of the best talks he ever heard. So That's great. thank you for being an important part of our community. That's true. Thank you it's for true. opening up today. I well, mean, I, this, I, think, I think it was a really um, fascinating conversation. Well,
1: thank you very much. <laughs> and
0: congratulations.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for coming, cool. Parker. Bye. Bye. What a story, Carolyn. Yeah, wow.
2: That was amazing.
0: I know. I mean, I think we just need to kind of l- basically leave it at that. <laughs> Let the story speak for you. Because right. I don't think there's we can add anything. It is a dramatic yeah. story. I mean, I will say between us, we've seen a lot of dramatic stories in Silicon Valley. Yep. Some that people know about, some that people don't. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's a good point.
0: And that definitely classifies as, you know, very bad investor behavior and very Sort of horrible things happen. Yeah, happening.
2: kind of one for the record books in terms of crazy behavior.
0: Exactly. But I will say, because i i don't want <laughs> I don't want would be founders to get scared mm-hmm. away. Don't you agree that that was sort of an exceptional story and that it it's oh not the norm, my gosh, of course. That's why know? I'm saying
2: one for the record books. Like that is a wild story. And yeah, like there's, yeah. A, I mean, that's just very unusual. That's not really what investors do. So,
0: yeah. So we'll just. We'll just leave it there.
2: I'm very much looking forward
0: to it coming out. Really appreciated Parker's candor. I mean, telling that story couldn't have been easy. And, you know, I feel like he took ownership of the things that he got wrong. Because he did get a few things wrong. He definitely didn't get wrong the things that he was accused of getting wrong publicly, you know. But he did get a few things wrong and he took ownership of it. And I appreciate it. Appreciated that and I'm I'm glad he was comfortable sharing it with us. So I think I think it's gonna be a good episode. I think so too. All right. I'll see you next time,
2: Carolyn. Bye. Bye.